Unsilencing Stories is a podcast that reflects the voices of people in small towns and communities in Canada who have lost loved ones to the toxic drug supply crisis. Since 2016, more than 30,000 people have died from fatal overdoses in Canada, and that number continues to climb. The risk in smaller towns and communities is much higher than in urban areas because of a lack of harm reduction services and stigma against substance use and people who use drugs. This podcast is part of a community-based participatory research project facilitated by Erin Goodman, PhD, a faculty member at Kwatlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, BC, along with students Jenna Keeble and Ashley Pokernich. The aim was to assist collaborators in publicly memorializing their loved ones and expressing grief, as well as challenging silences imposed by dominant media organizations and stigma from society against substance use and people who use drugs. We hope these nuanced stories make a clear why the government needs to be doing more to prevent further deaths. Please note, this podcast contains information about overdose death, grief, and trauma that may be distressing to listen to. In this episode, you'll hear Rachel McCarcher interview Jules Badao, a harm reduction worker in Prince George, British Columbia. Badao speaks about friend Blair Lauren, who died of an overdose in November 2021 in Montreal, Quebec, at age 34. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Jules Boudau. Um, in the punk scene, I'm known as Jules Generic. I live in Prince George, BC. Um, I've lived here for two and a half years. Um, and I moved here from Vancouver. Do you have someone in mind that you'd like to talk about for this project? Yeah, I want to talk about Blair. Tell us about Blair. Blair was my friend for a really long time. They were a few years younger than me. They could play any instrument and just like everything was like self-taught with them you know they played every instrument they recorded music I just feel like they always had some insane project with some insane skill that they had learned I always felt like they'd be like oh I'm like depressed not doing much but then it'd be like oh I'm in like five bands and I'm recording this other band and uh we're record we're um organizing like a slow dance fundraiser dance party and then also um I'm a bike messenger you know what I mean like there are always like so many things going on with them yes I do know what you mean (laughs) where did you uh meet Blair um so I met Blair at the Sikh temple in Vancouver which is where uh the punks go to eat for free in Vancouver um from Monday to Thursday 7 p.m you can go eat for free there there's this big Sikh temple right by like the first avenue, like highway exit. So I think it was 2008. And I, yeah, I went to Sikh Temple and this person, uh, Toadie, who was there. And I was sitting at the same table as him. And he was on tour with his band, which included Blair. And I was like, oh, like, where are you guys staying? And they were like, I don't know. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, you guys can just come stay at my house. Like, that's okay. At the time, I was living at this punk house called The Library, which was right off of, uh, right by Trout Lake in Vancouver. It was like, compared to other punk houses, like kind of, kind of fancy. Like we had like clean carpet all over and like three stories, like lots of like really comfortable places for people to sleep. Nice. And you could have like a lot of house guests, but you could still like go be somewhere in the house and like be alone and not be like overstimulated and so it was the perfect place for them to crash then, probably. Yeah, it was like the place where I could always feel like I could like invite people to stay for as long as they want. And they did stay for a long time. Were you in contact with Blair um, from that time until now? Yeah, like 
pretty much like off and on like it wasn't like we were like talking like every day or like even every month but you know we would talk over instagram messenger um soon after so blair stayed at my house for a few weeks then and then came back it's such a good time um and like all we would do was like smoke so much pot and listen to like very loud like noise records and then like go walk around in the forest and go to punk shows and then they came back later that summer and stayed at my house again and then later that year I I went to Europe for a few months because I thought I was going to live in Barcelona which was stupid um and then I moved to Newfoundland and then after that um whenever I left Newfoundland and went to Montreal I would always see Blair like they would always be like organizing the show I was playing or I would like stay at their house and then when I moved to Vancouver I probably saw them once a year their parents or at least maybe their mom and stuff I don't know their parental figures some of them lived in had moved to Vancouver I don't know if you knew that yeah like a weird little uh fact about that was that they bought David Duchovny's old condo that is an amazing fact. Thank you for that. Yeah. And it was like, when I was in the 90s, like very briefly, I like lived in this foster home that was like very into like the X-Files or whatever. And I just always think of that as like the quintessential like 90s like existence. And like, I feel like this condo, I like just had so many elements like from that, like there were just lots of like weird stairs going to nowhere and like, of and course like, it's like, I mean, lots of like balconies and like vines and stuff. So. Um, that sounds pretty uh, par for the course if it's David Duchovny's house. Yeah, exactly. Condo. <laughs> condo. Condo, um, sorry. Yeah, pretty high up. I forget exactly where. Somewhere off Denman Street in the west end of Vancouver. So yeah, I did see them like once a year or so. And then, of course, not after I moved to Prince George. When did you hear about Blair's passing? Oh, like, I remember that day so well, because it was like, like, I, in the fall, I was definitely like not doing very well. I, I like, um, had like really low iron too. And there's like, most of my days were like, not good. And I remember that that day was like, really good. At first, I was like, working a work contract with the BC First Nations Justice Council. And I was like, doing frontline work, like collecting affidavits from people have been living in the encampment here and then I like took my dog for a walk and then I went grocery shopping and then my friend Megan Spears texted me and she was like hey can I call you I have some really bad news to tell you and I was like I knew that someone had died I had no idea who and then I was like I'm just in the grocery store I'm just gonna finish my grocery shop and I'll um, message you after and then so yeah she called me and she told me it was Blair and it was like so devastating um, were you aware that Blair was a drug user yeah but I am also a drug user like we it was like we had very like similar like one of our very last conversations they were like they were just joking around and they were like I don't remember what it was but it was just like a joke about me Cause there's like this story about the first time I ever smoked crack was like this girl who like went to Harvard and we like smoked crack together in the elf house attic and Blair was making a joke about that. And then I was like, yeah, you know, I don't even 
I haven't even done drugs in forever because of the drug supply. And they were like, yeah, it's been like a year for me. So it's like, we were both like casual, but I think that other people didn't know. So right after I had heard about Blair, I was like thinking about other people who might not have known. Yeah. I think what happened was that she had done stimulant or that, sorry, I still think of Blair as she, that they had done stimulants and then their like supply was contaminated. It was like an accidental overdose when they were doing stimulants. And then, so of course it's like, this is my whole life. Well, it's like, it's almost like so cruel, right? Like, yes. That like, like why is, and not that it's about me, but I'm just like, I can't believe that this is happening. And I just feel like I'm like my life in like the past three years has been like, like fraught with like people who do stimulants and then die. Like my, like my stepfather was high on meth when he killed himself. And before that he had been high on meth when he jumped out his window and it was like broke his back and I like nursed him back to health. And then he just later ended up dying. I'm like literally writing a fucking thesis about safe supply for stimulant users, like help gets people who use stimulants. And like, I just, and like, I didn't even know that it like, you know, it's like when I like write that, when I'm like writing this thesis and doing all this research, I'm not like, I need to know this information so I can save Blair's life. Like I, that's just doesn't even like occur to me. And then I'm like, I just like couldn't even believe that that had happened. And then, you know, I think everything is political. So of course I'm like, I can't believe like this drug supply and like the government. And then Blair's like ex-girlfriend is messaging me being like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you know? Like Rosie and they had been together for so long. And I was like, I was like oh you didn't know that Blair used drugs and she was like I didn't know and so then it was like am I like politicizing things that shouldn't be politicized am I like sharing bad information am I yeah and it's just so weird and then I'm like I feel like those things were discussed like in person in Montreal and they've like come to a resolution or like and I'm just like so far out of that conversation you were saying that you, of course, you know, see safe supply and overdose and accidental overdose as things that are political. Do you feel that because of that, is Blair's death political to you? Is that something that should be shared? Yeah. And like, you know, I, I, I think there's like two sides to it. Like, it's like, I'm not sure if you were this group, it's like moms who stop the harm and they're like a political advocacy group and they like push for like policy change and like very specific things. And then it's like based on the premise of like their children dying of overdose and they share their stories. And I think that they do amazing work, like one, like full stop. I'm not going to like contradict that. But then at the same time, it's like, I hate that we need to like argue for the humanity of drug users by being like, here's the children of white middle-class people. But then at the same time, I'm just, you know what I mean? I want to be like, we need to change things because this is a person that I fucking love, but that was like really important to me. Do you think that sometimes um, being public with this information and thereby making it politicized, do you think sometimes that ends up being at odds with that feeling we were talking about before of how people feel guilty or embarrassed? How do you think that that guilt and embarrassment, like, maybe how does that affect the political I think the guilt and embarrassment like stops people from like being upfront about that and it's like I don't 
those are like real emotions and like people like Blair's family and people like close to Blair anybody else close to Blair I mean I'm like those feelings are real and I don't I don't blame anyone for having those feelings and like acting on them like there's like you know I act in ways like motivated by like guilt and shame that like deep down isn't just you know what I mean I'm just like I don't like I'm not like oh get like move it's political so like move through it like I get it maybe both can exist you know both can exist together in tandem but one shouldn't override the other maybe I guess I and that's like a thing too it's like I feel like I'm not part of any like discussion about how Blair should be like memorialized I'm just like over here like trying to deal with like the death of like my very good friend who was like in my corner in like a way that like a lot of people like weren't and like connecting it to this like very real like government neglect and then like never being sure if I'm like upsetting people in like a touching way or in a bad way or and how do you think living in Prince George, you know, living in a smaller city, how do you think the sentiment is different as opposed to, like you said, living in Vancouver? How do people um, approach the issue of drug use and overdoses differently? In Prince George and Montreal? Yeah, or Vancouver or any bigger center. I think it's like kind of hard for me to answer that question. And like one thing that makes it really difficult for me dealing with overdose in Prince George right now is um, like when people who die that you like care about, or even they're like your friend, but you're not really like connected to their community so much. And you're like, or you're, because I feel like, like I was working in downtown Prince George for like six months. I was working, I was managing the overdose prevention site and like, it was peer staff. So like people who were drug users were like my friends and my coworkers and like their friends would come in and, you know, um, when people die, I just like, don't, I don't, I don't hear about it. And like, sorry, what would Blair think of your work or what did Blair think of your work? I felt like Blair was always like impressed by me. And then I was like, but you're, (laughs) I don't know. Like Blair was so impressive. So it was like always an honor. And I think that, like, they did make a comment about, like, opening and managing an overdose prevention site in Prince George was, like, the punkest thing ever. Amazing. Um, I wish I talked more about my thesis with them because, yeah, I don't know. I would have wanted to know their perspective because I didn't even really, like, think about them in the context of my thesis, you know? And, like... And you do now? Yeah, I do now. And, like, I do think of, like... So it's, like, we are, like, pushing for these, like, interventions, like, safe supply, et cetera, like, or, like, safer pharmaceutical alternatives. Um, And it's, like, very hard to access those things unless you are, like, have, like, completely, like, let your life fall apart. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard. And, like, even, like, with my ex-partner, who was, like, an extremely heavy cocaine user, it was, like, very hard for him to access safe supply because he was, like, still housed, sort of still employed. I'm, like, interviewing all these people. I've interviewed two people this week. And I'm, like, what does meth do for you? And they were, like, 
when it hits me, I feel calmer and it's like all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And um, which is like exactly how I felt the very first time I did Ritalin and I'm a person with ADHD. Like I was like, sat down and like read a book and it was like, in my head, I could see like a scaffolding of like all the topics and subtopics. And I was like, this is as smart as I deserve to be. And like, I think that there is like a, a hugely like functional part of using stimulants that's like left out of the, the conversation. Like, we just think of like, oh, like meth addicts, they just like, like to party and like make bad choices and have bad teeth. And it's like, that's not like, you know, either, you know, like either it has like a functional thing or like, it's good for their brain in a way that like other people don't understand, or they're just like trying to stay awake because they don't have a place to sleep, like, et cetera. But like, I think that like the functional part of stimulant use is like left out of the conversation quite a lot, or it's like, we don't want to talk about that as if it like glamorizes it or something. And like, I wish I just had a little more of that conversation with them. I wish I understood their brain a little bit better in that way, because I, you know, we like, we joked a, a little bit about it, but you know, we never like used stimulants together or like talked about it in real life. Like, I don't know. We only like just smoke so much pot together. Um, yeah. It's clear to me though, from what you're saying is that they trusted you. Blair trusted you to be open about using. Um, yeah. That's pretty special. Yeah. You know, what's so sad is like the night they died, I like got this not the shirt I'm wearing it was a different long sleeve black shirt from uh this hotline called never never use alone in America and like I put like a an Instagram post where I was like who would have thought that in 2021 I like no longer buy band t-shirts just harm reduction merchandise and like when I think of that and like thinking about like band shirts I always think of Blair um Blair had this like huge collection of my of shirts from my bands that was just sent to me which was like weird (laughs) I said I wanted it sent and when I got them I was like why did I say that I wanted this it's so weird um like I wish that they had like trusted me like that night even though like I mean I've known like I literally know over 50 people who have died of overdose I don't like really let myself like entertain those thoughts too much because I know like where I can go and it just it just doesn't help like to be like oh I wish they had messaged me like moving forward I should tell more people they can message me but what do you think the advice would be from Blair about being able to heal from this death or being able to cope and what do you think the advice would be for you from them I don't know. I don't remember Blair really ever giving me like that kind of advice. It was more like practical advice, which just like helped me or like was just like very encouraging. But I don't really recall like, I don't know, did Blair ever give you advice? Yeah. Yeah. I think that their advice was very brief, but their constant um, like just wanting to comfort was like so pure and all the time, you know, it was like unwavering. Um, care and love you know right after Blair died legs posted a song from their Instagram from like 2016 it's they're playing a a Fugazi song I'm so tired and they like learned it on piano and what's really sweet is that Rosie found the notebook where Blair had written down like the notes when they were learning it and like mailed it to me which was really touching but I like 
cried for days and then like learned that song including the solo which is like a little bit out of my I'm like not a very technical guitar player so I feel like that was like a good way that's kind of like advice though just not yeah. direct yeah I like sort of like connected with Blair like posthumously over the song I, I had never really like I've listened to Fugazi but I never really listened to that song before I like um pushed myself in terms of like learning like learning how to play that guitar and like or play that song on guitar and like record it um <laughs> I watched their last music video over and over and over again while crying I don't know um I felt like I dealt with it in a pretty Blair way like just really just went deep into like listening to their music they really once they referred to me as their punk rock older sister so maybe <laughs> that's why they never really gave me advice maybe it was the other way no oh, I can see that I fed I fed Blair a lot over the years. Took care of them. Yeah. Well, but they always maybe... they always gave back. Like like they stayed at my house for so long, and I like cooked so much food for them and their band. But then they would just like clean the fuck out of my kitchen, like every dish done. I love that. Like such a good house guest. What a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> um. Is there any other questions you want me to ask you here? We get to enough or. Is there anything you want to talk about? I guess like one thing and that has like impacted me with them gone is that I felt like they were like archiving my life for me. That's so beautiful. Uh, But now they're not here. They just had like so many like records and tapes that had released and they had over 10 band t-shirts of mine from my bands. Um, And then, yeah, they like like Rosie, their ex-partner asked me if I wanted them back or if I wanted the shirts. And I said, yes, because I just, I didn't really know the alternative. I didn't know what else to say. Like if I said no, would they be thrown in the trash? Like probably not, but I just like, or like, what am I going to say? No, no, give them to my other fans. I was just like, sure. Yeah. And then when they like sent the box to me, it was like so heartbreaking to just like open the box. It was almost like such a like a return to sender like here's everything you've created and the person who like like loved it so much is now dead and so they don't well, that's your to... legacy isn't it it's my legacy so far in a box from Blair yeah it's quite poetic <laughs> I also gave them a Margaret Thrasher tattoo do you remember when that was um that would have been in 2008 and one of the times that they came and visited me it says MXTX, like MXPX, but T for Margaret Thrasher. And we just thought that was so funny. Oh, wow. It's like very, it was like very faded on the back of their arm. So you've been, you know, more or less in contact with Blair for a long time. What is your absolute favorite memory? I don't know if it's my favorite memory. And I don't know why this one stands out so much. But I remember once I was in Montreal for like a while. I spent a lot of time like in Montreal over the years and like I was supposed to go on a date with someone but I just like wasn't up for it I just like canceled it and then like Blair and I like went for a bike ride by the canal and like Verdun or wherever and then just like laid in the grass and I was like how come we just can't be in love and they just like shrugged at the time I didn't know that they were trans I think that that like that was why I'm I'm just too straight um but they just like shrugged and then we're just like yeah (laughs) whatever like like in a way we were always like we had a like a very like romantic friendship like 
There's too much pressure, Rachel. <laughs> you don't have to share. I guess it's like the takeaway is that it's like we all need to be, it's like the responsibility for staying alive is like not solely on us. It's like a huge government misfailure, but we all need to be a little bit more careful. Be aware of like what we're, what we could like just leave behind by just being like a little bit irresponsible. Like we all have connections to like the phone numbers and the apps. Like there's so many ways to like keep ourselves alive in case you just like don't know, like a sliver of like, carfentanil contamination in your coke could be the thing that does it for you it's like the concentrations are so high and like I need to remember that too about being careful and it's like and just and like pushing I don't know we've like like drug use is just still like so shameful and like we need to like start like really pushing through that that's that's your moment that's your (laughs) the line (laughs) that's my money That brings us to the end of this episode of the Unsilencing Stories podcast. To listen to more interviews in the series, please go to www.unsilencingstories.com. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, message us at unsilencingstories at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and please share the project of other people you know.